everyone. So, so this week, as as uh, as Nick said, Brian is going to be teaching. Um, Brian and I have known each other for about 13 years, right? Yeah, uh, and and uh, art and beauty are a favorite subject matter for us both. And so. Uh, when, uh, when the ability to teach his class came up, I wanted uh, to uh, bring him on for at least one session uh, just because of the long, long discussions we've had over those 13 years. So, uh, and beauty is uh, one of his favorite subjects. He's taught on it at Sojourn before here. And, uh, and so after, uh, after this week, obviously next week, uh, will will be our budget meeting. The week after that, we will start going through one of my favorite subjects, uh, the relationship of art and church history. And so we'll start in uh, in the first century and kind of uh, start bridging the gap between uh, then and now. So without further ado, Mr. Brian Lilly. <laughs> Thank you, Jacob. One thing have I desired of the Lord. One thing I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the fair beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Psalm 27, 4 through 5 in the New Coverdale, 4 in most English translations. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we ask that you would increase our desire to behold your beauty. Sanctify our imaginations and our affections that our hearts would turn to you, that we might look with delight upon your beauty, and that you would be glorified through this class in our time together today. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. So my Jacobian task today is to talk about beauty in 45 minutes. As our governor says, uh, we will get through this. We will get through this together. As Christians, we believe that beauty is rooted in God's eternal, unchanging, divine nature. And as such, God has woven his beauty like a thread through all of Scripture Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And he has also woven it into the fabric of creation itself so that we might experience it and by it be moved to worship him. Our outline for today. uh, First, we're going to ask, what is beauty and why is it important? Uh, It's fairly important to ask such questions for a discussion like this. But then we're going to move into a theology of beauty. And uh, in that, we're going to ask, what is the beauty of God? Then we're going to look at beauty in the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2. And Lord willing, if we get there, and the ending, Revelation 21 and 22. So let's jump in. What is beauty? Beauty is the harmony between qualities that um, 
the qualities of something, whether it's physical or less tangible, that when we perceive or experience it, it gives us a sense of pleasure and delight and awe and wonder. Now, there's other things that it works up in us, but to start with, uh, we'll just keep these in mind. Not only that, beauty is one of the transcendentals of being or properties of being, along with goodness and truth. That means that where beauty exists, we will find both truth and goodness. But unfortunately, the opposite is also true. Where there is a loss of beauty, there will also be a dissolution of truth and goodness. The Swiss theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar talks about the dissolution of the transcendentals when he says, beauty will not allow herself to be separated and banned from her two sisters without taking them along with her in a mysterious act of vengeance. We can be sure that whoever sneers at beauty can no longer pray and soon will no longer be able to love. Anglican Bishop N.T. Wright says similarly and more concisely, when people cease to be surrounded by beauty, they cease to hope. As a side note, in a former life, before grace, I was a pastor of a Baptist church, and, and much of my time was spent in congregational care and counseling. And I can say that in my experience, this is devastatingly true. A crisis of faith always carried along with it a loss of the sense of God's beauty, whether it was the root of that crisis or uh, a result of that crisis. But finally, as I said, beauty is rooted in God's eternal, unchanging divine nature. The beauty we see in creation is a reflection of God's beauty. And uh, D.C. Schindler, who was giving a lecture on Balthazar, uh, summarized his theology of aesthetic like this. Beauty does not bring the infinite down, but it lifts us up into the mystery of God. With that, let's, let's take this idea of beauty and, and, and move towards the idea of the beauty of God. So how, do, how does this come into play? Well, before we get into um, a, a definition, let's work out some things about God's nature first. The first of the 39 articles of religion, of faith in the Holy Trinity, says this of the divine nature, that God is without body, parts, or passions. In other words, God is not divisible. God simply is And therefore, if God is indivisible, his attributes are also indivisible, which means that uh, they're indivisible from each other. Uh, We'll see later his beautiful holiness, uh, but also they're indivisible from God himself. We see this in a famous passage of Exodus 33, uh, where Moses asks God to see his glory. And he says that he will show him his glory, uh, but also adds that when my glory passes by, I will not put you, or I will, (laughs) will, will, 
I will put you in a cleft of the rock and cover you until I have passed by. So which is it? Is it God's glory that passes by or God himself? We call this an inclusive or. The answer is yes. Or consider the uh, well-known and mostly misunderstood passage in 1 John 4.18. God is love. God identifies himself with his attributes because of his simplicity and indivisibility. But regarding beauty in particular, we find that scripture strongly correlates God's beauty with his glory. For example, in Psalm <coughs> excuse me, Psalm 29 verses 1 and 2 also found in Psalm 96 and 2 Chronicles it seem to be a bit of a confession of the Israelites. Ascribe to the Lord, you sons of God. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in his beautiful holiness. Or we can also say his holy beauty. The developmental parallelism in in these verses suggests that there is a correlation between God's glory and strength and holiness. And the descriptor beautiful then also applies to each. In fact, the glory due his name also harkens back to Exodus 33, where God's name is his essence. His essence, among other descriptors, is beautiful. See it again in Isaiah 4.2. On that day, the branch of the Lord, who is Christ, shall be beautiful and glorious. And again in Isaiah 28, 4 through 5, that wreath, the pride of Ephraim's drunkards, will be trampled underfoot. That fading flower, Ephraim's glorious beauty, will be swallowed up. That's a summary of a couple different things there. But uh, in that day, the Lord Almighty will be a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath for the remnant of his people. Note the contrast here. There is a counterfeit glorious beauty in Ephraim and the true glorious beauty of God. And again, we have a a parallelism, this this time synonymous, where uh, we see in verse 5, a glorious crown, a beautiful wreath. Again, a strong correlation between God's beauty and his glory. So what do, we, what do we do with all that? Um, God's beauty is God himself in his glory. The experience of whom produces in us a sense of awe and wonder and transcendence. We do not experience the attributes of God abstractly. We experience God himself. And we experience God himself in his beauty or in his glory, in his holiness. And if what I've said so far is right, then all those things simultaneously. 
And that brings us to the beginning. This is the largest bulk of what I have for you today. So uh, we'll be spending some time here. Two takeaways from the opening chapters of Genesis, um, particular to what I'm talking about today. I'm not saying these are even necessarily the main points, but for uh, beauty, uh, things that I want us to understand. And I'm giving them up to you up front in case the exegesis fails to deliver them. The display of God's beauty through creation is an intentional act of God's self-revelation. It is not an incidental effect of creation, in other words. God's beauty, number two, God's beauty is a necessary element of our flourishing. His beauty fills, informs, and transforms every aspect of our lives. It transforms everything. Now, that being said, as we get into the text, um, uh, Jacob uh, has mentioned, um, and uh, theologians agree with Jacob, such as G.K. Beale and George Wyndham and John Walton, that the best way for us to read Genesis 1 and 2 is that it portrays creation itself as the temple of God, a cosmic temple. Um, and uh, just a couple uh, a, a few of many examples of this from the text is that the seven days of creation match the seven day ceremonies of the ancient Near East to inaugurate a temple. Uh, near the completion of the temple, an icon or the image of God is placed at the center of the temple to represent the God's presence. And third, when the ceremony is complete, God is said to take his rest in the temple. And that does not mean that he ceases from his work. What that means is that um, it, uh, when an authority figure takes rest, it is taking the throne and establishing one's rule over the kingdom. So if this is true, I submit to you it is. Uh, Genesis 1 is liturgical. A liturgy of creation which displays the beauty of God. We begin with a call to worship. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Before anything else existed, God existed, and he has created everything that is. But at first, creation is dark. It is, as the ancient readers would have understood the phrase, <clears throat> formless and empty, it was chaotic and desolate. And this is further intensified by the sea, uh, which was known as a symbol of chaos. The raging, tempestuous seas. But God is up to something. 
the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, over the sea of chaos. And the imagery here is that of a mother bird brooding over her eggs, waiting for them to hatch. So Genesis 1, 1 to 1, 2 says, here is our God who created everything and is about to do something which we have no category for. The stage is set. The ceremony is about to begin. We move from that call to worship into Genesis 1, 3 through 25. And in this section, we see God's creative acts. And there is a pattern to this text. It is a liturgical call and response. The divine call goes out, let there be. And creation responds, there was. God is the celebrant of this liturgy. And creation responds to each divine call. On days one through three, God overcomes chaos with order. And in so doing, he forms domains and habitats, environments. Then on days four to six, God overcomes the desolation by filling those habitats and domains with flourishing life. And that life is fitting for the domain he has created for it. There is order and there is flourishing. And each one of those sections of call and response ends with uh, this. God saw what he made and it was good. There was evening and there was morning the nth day. If you are thinking liturgically, in our rubrics today, silence is kept. You see, when we read this, what it invites us to do as the reader is to pause, to stop, to contemplate God's glory in his creative work, and to admire creation's goodness reflecting God's own, and respond ourselves in worship. It's the same pattern, actually, that Sabbath rest was meant to be. So let's do that. Let's pause and let's contemplate the goodness of creation. What does it mean that creation is good? Well, both the Hebrew text and, and the Greek translation that came afterward, the Septuagint, they, they use words that are, are uh, pregnant with connotation of the transcendentals that we've talked about already. Beautiful, honest, and good. And we have to be careful here. Like when we have a lexicon, when we have uh, a series of words that could fit, we want to make sure that the content, the context is what shapes our understanding of the word. We're not doing an amplified Bible here uh, where you can just pick and choose whatever word you want. No offense to anyone who has an amplified Bible with them. Um, maybe a little bit, but we don't get to pick and choose. So um, I, th I, I think that we can argue from the context itself that this pregnant 
sense of good is correct, though. One, because of what we've already said about the transcendentals. But two, um, because of the context of Genesis 1 through 3 itself. So creation is beautiful. If it wasn't, I would not have much to say up here today. It is pleasing to God. God was pleased with what he created. And it reflects his beauty. Um, That is the transcendental of beauty, in case there is a question of that. Creation is also moral. It is without sin or rebellion. This is goodness. Um, If you need a context to help you with this, read Genesis 3 through Revelation 20. (laughs) It is without sin or rebellion. And creation is fitting. Uh, Another word that you might have heard uh, for this is functional. Each created thing is fulfilling its God-ordained function, role, and purpose. The luminaries give their lights. The ecosystems give shelter and food to the animals that are within them. Uh, The animals are doing their various animal things that help propagate the health of the ecosystem. Everything is working and in harmony. And this is the idea, at least partially, of shalom in Eden. That everything is working the way that it is supposed to be. That there is harmony and that there is flourishing. Creation is good in all that that entails. And God, it is good because God has taken the chaos and the desolation and given it order, purpose, and flourishing. And in doing so, it reflects his beauty and is almost, at this point, a fitting sanctuary for God to dwell in. And I say almost because something's still missing. The placement of the icon, the image of God within the temple. Genesis 2, verses 8, and the first part of 9. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight. Now if we think of, if if we are thinking in terms of temple, and we think of the latter, or the later tabernacle and the temple which follows after that there is a specific architecture to it and that is that um, from inner to outermost you have the holy of holies then you have the sanctuary itself and then you have what's called the outer courts and each one of those segments Um, have different functions, right? Only the the high priest can go into the Holy of Holies. Um, Others can go into the sanctuary itself uh, for sacrifice and what have you offered by the priests. The outer court is probably the most inclusive of who gets to be there. And as you move from the outer courts towards the Holy of Holies, you are coming further and further into the presence of God. 
in creation, we see a similar pattern. God's presence dwelt in the Garden of Eden, the Holy of Holies. Notice, it is a garden planted in Eden. It is not the whole of Eden. Uh, There's Eden, and in Eden there is a garden. And then we find... Uh, Yes. And there he put the man whom he had formed, the placement of the image of God in the temple. In the sanctuary. And the thing we have to... uh, There's one more. We'll get to the outer courts. But... uh, The thing we have to realize is that Eden, the word itself, means pleasure and delight. And Eden was filled with trees that are pleasant to the sight. I didn't mean for that to rhyme. That was coincidental. (laughs) Um, So the Garden of Beauty is filled with beauty. The author really wants you to understand that Eden is a place of excelling beauty even over and against the rest of creation which is at this point the outer court um, in tw- Psalm 27 4 which, I, which started our class um, David's desire was to behold the beauty of the Lord and often if you're like me we probably just read through that Um, But have you ever stopped to think, wait, God is invisible. How does David behold the beauty of the Lord, of the invisible God? There was a scant 33 to 36 years where that was possible because of the incarnation. Uh. If you don't know your Bible history, that came much later than David. <laughs> well, the psalm actually tells us, and I foolishly put the first page away because I thought I was done. Um, one thing that I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the fair beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. You see, the, the, the architecture and the aesthetics of the tabernacle and the, the temple are um, intentional. That's why almost half of the book of Exodus is dedicated to them. And I think it's roughly 40%. Um, and what's odd, I think, to me about that is what... What is the book of Exodus? It's the book of Israel's identity. It's got the Exodus. It's got Sinai. It's got the covenant that God makes with them. And so in this important foundational document of the nation of Israel, charging forward in uh, fulfillment of of the covenant with Abraham, we have 40% of a book dedicated to aesthetics and architecture. He, 
he could see the beauty of the invisible God by contemplating the beauty of the tabernacle itself. It was built, uh, it says, according to the heavenly uh, blueprint or whatever, however we translate that. But it looked an awful lot like Eden with its blues and its trees and its pomegranates and its basins that looked like the river that ran out of Eden and the tree of life in some of the various furnitures. So it seems that Eden itself was also part of this heavenly blueprint. But then we get to the rest of creation, the outer courts. And, and listen, it, it was also beautiful, don't get me wrong. Um, but there are no superlatives given <laughs> to the rest of creation. Here's what we do get. The gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. That's, that's our detail. And if you're reading through it, you're just like, well, what is, this, what is this cat talking about? Like, who cares, right? What, an, what a weird detail to throw in at a time when paper or their ver- version of that was scarce and they had to conserve as much as they could and be only give details that matter. We'll come back to that. The idea, though, is that creation is no longer chaotic, but it is unfinished. And these raw materials are mentioned because they speak to the potential of the rest of creation. And in doing that, it also gives us a clue as to what our function as human beings is to be in the world. We call that function, or or maybe better, a calling or vocation. We, We often call it the cultural mandate. Uh, in First Peter, uh, St. Peter, in his first epistle, reminds us that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you'll know that that actually is uh, something that God calls Israel itself, the nation. Um, which is why I think he also follows it up with the nation. I can't remember off the top of my head, but uh, we're also called a nation. So, so St. Peter is, is picking up these themes from the Old Testament. Um, but uh, the designation that Israel received as a chosen race, uh, a royal priesthood, did not start with the nation of Israel. It was God's intention for human beings from the beginning. <clears throat> our vocation, our calling... Our shared calling, I should say. We have our individual vocations, but as human beings, um, we are called to be a royal priesthood. And we see the royal aspect of this in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make humankind in our image according to our likeness. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over uh, a list of things, but basically every living creature. See, when God rests from his creative work, uh, it's not a true rest, right? We mentioned that. It's not a ceasing from all activity. It was a ceasing of his creative activity. And he ceases from his creative activity, leaving... Uh, the rest of creation unfinished. 
And so when he takes up his rest in his temple, he delegates that continuation of creative work to human beings. Have dominion, fill the earth, and subdue it. This language might sound exploitative, and many have taken it that way, unfortunately. But if we read it in its context, it's meant to reflect the creative work that God does in Genesis 1, 3 through 25. And what he does in those verses, as we talked about, is to exercise his dominion by subduing chaos and desolation, bringing creation to a place of flourishing shalom that reflects his beauty. Our vocation as human beings is to continue that work. He did it out of nothing. Uh, graciously, he gave us stuff to do it with. Now, as Beale and others have noted as well, um, the result of this calling is that we would expand the geographical boundaries of the Garden of Eden until Eden extended throughout and covered the whole earth. As a result of that, God's presence and glory and beauty would fill the entire earth as well. C.F. Habakkuk 2.14. So, how do, we, how do we jump on this task? How do we go about it? Well, we get that in Genesis 2.15, which is our, the priestly aspect of our calling. The Lord God put him, put, the, put Adam, put the man in the Garden of Eden to work it, and take care of it. All right. How is this a priestly calling? Uh, the next time that we see this phrase, uh, work it and keep it, although uh, there's some, again, the context works with the words a little bit, but it's the same Hebrew phrase. The next time we see it is in the book of Numbers. And if you have been able to make it through the book of Numbers, you would have come to a place that describes the vocation and calling of the Levitical priests. The phrase that is used is this phrase, to work it and keep it. The image of God in his temple is a priest. Remember that we said that the existence of the raw materials reflected creation's potential. Human beings were to expand the boundaries of Eden through cultivating the world. As Andy Crouch says in his book, Culture Making, Recovering Our Creative Calling, we are to make something of the world. We make things. It's not just the divine gardening, although that is part of it. But we are to use those raw materials to make stuff, what we commonly call culture. And the goal of this is that through culture-making, we would display the beauty of God. Abraham Kuyper uh, said in the inauguration of the Free University, probably his most famous quote, There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. So what this means for us is whether you're taming the financial chaos with spreadsheets 
or if you are taking care of desolation of public areas as a janitor. Exercising kingly authority as a CEO or just doing whatever it is that you can to attempt to raise children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. There are no meaningless jobs in the kingdom of God. From the most mundane moments of our lives to the most extraordinary, God's beauty informs them all and it transforms how we see everything. (laughs) But this sounds good. Genesis 3 introduces a bit of a problem, doesn't it? How are we to understand this vocation now that we are east of Eden? How does the fall affect our calling? Well, the first thing that we should know is that it didn't revoke it. This calling is given next to Noah, and then following Noah, Abraham, and then the rest of the patriarchs. It is, it is not broken. Well, it is broken in the fall, but it is not taken away. It, the fall did make fulfilling this mandate more difficult and frustrating. And we see that in Genesis 3 with the curse of the pain and thistles and thorns and sweat. Your job is not meaningless, but it might be very frustrating. And finally, the fall destroyed our ability to recognize the beauty of God through creation. I don't mean that it marred it. I don't mean that it is broken. It absolutely destroyed our ability to see the beauty of God. And that leads us to idolize creation and beauty rather than the beautiful creator, Romans 1. And now, everything from Genesis 4 to Revelation 20 is God's plan enacted in history to reverse the fall and through the life, death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension. We leave a couple of those out from time to time. The life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, through that to redeem us from sin and death and transform all of creation so that it might once again be a fitting habitat that he intended for us. That habitat is a place to play and bask in the glory and beauty of God and enjoy him forever. We see a picture of this. Hey, we made it. In Revelation 21 and 22. Our Lord gave St. John a vision of the end of history as we know it. And in it, this creation's transformation into something that is infinitely more beautiful than we could ever imagine. What's interesting, though, besides what, what things are in the new creation, is what isn't. What didn't make it? I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Um, So I, I don't know uh, if we are to take the absence of the sea literally or not. I, it does seem strange to me um, that God created something good and it doesn't make it in. Um, perhaps, though, what, what, we're, what we take away from this is that the absence of the sea in this vision represents the total absence of chaos, danger, and desolation See Genesis 1-2 and a bunch of other places that I'm not going to jump to for lack of time. Uh, they will be on the slides. In its place, we find perfect flourishing. The very shalom intended from the beginning for which all of our hearts now yearn and ache. But also, and I love this language, the city, which is the church, uh, the bride of Christ, has no need for the sun or moon. It doesn't say whether it's there or not. Maybe earlier, I don't remember, maybe it says there's no sun or moon. But here, they don't need it. There's no need. Why? Because God's glory and his beauty will be fully revealed in Christ. And he is our light. No sea, no need of sun or moon. And if you fell asleep while I was talking about the cultural mandate, you need a reminder that there are no meaningless jobs. None. John sees that the cultural mandate will be fulfilled in the new creation. By the Lamb's light, a continuation from the previous verse, the nations will walk and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Nothing unclean will ever enter into it. John is quoting from Isaiah 60, uh, as he is wont to do throughout the Revelation. Uh, John, uh, Isaiah and Ezekiel are uh, big sources. But in Isaiah 60... One thing that's a little bit more apparent is that when it says that uh, talks about the glory and honor of the nations being brought in, that it is reflective of the wealth and the culture and the beauty that they produced. Um, one example of this is actually explicitly in, I think, Isaiah 60 is this, the ships of Tarshish, which was basically a wonder of the world at that point. And what's interesting about that is Ezekiel has already said they're about to be destroyed <laughs> out of judgment. As Paul writes um, in 1 Corinthians 15, he, he goes on this big chapter, uh, well, he will an epistle, but for us a chapter on the importance of the resurrection and how Christ has truly been resurrected from the dead 
And therefore, we know that we will follow him in the general resurrection at the end of time. And he finishes that chapter by saying the weirdest thing that I think Paul might have said. And he said a lot of weird things. Therefore, no, because of the resurrection, because the resurrection is true and because we are going to follow Christ into the resurrection, we will be resurrected ourselves. No, that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Your work matters. And this is a picture of why. There's many reasons. But the best that we are to produce that reflects the beauty of God makes it in somehow. I don't know what that looks like. Um, But it gets in. And I've got... A couple more minutes left, and there's a lot more that I want to say about Revelation 21 and 22. I recommend just spending time in these chapters. But I I do want to focus uh, for an ending on how the beauty of God in Revelation 21 and 22 is seen through the reversal of the fall. In the first part of Tolkien's uh, The Silmarillion, Jacob is chuckling because he knew this was going to happen probably. Uh, in the Silmarillion, uh, we see both the creation and the fall of Arda, which is the earth in Lord of the Rings. And like ours, uh, this fall comes through a rebellion. As creation unfolds and evil begins to infect everything, Eru, who is the creator god in, in Lord of the Rings, uh, confronts uh, Melkor, who is leading this, the rebellion of the Ainur. Listen, the details aren't that important. Anyways, he confronts Melkor, and he says this, You shall see that no theme may be played that does not have its uttermost source in me. No one can alter the music in my despite. Whoever attempts this shall prove to be nothing but my instrument in devising things more wonderful which even he has not imagined. Melkor and the evil that he introduced is merely Eru's instrument to make everything far more beautiful than it would have been otherwise. And several ages later, after Sauron's ring is destroyed, the true hero of Lord of the Rings, by the way, Sam Gamgee, if you're confused, regains consciousness. And in waking up, he's surprised that he's alive. And he's even more surprised to see Gandalf, who he hasn't seen since the first book, thinking he was dead. Spoiler alerts. And in his surprise, he turns to Gandalf and in his wonder asks him, is everything sad going to come untrue? Revelation 21, 3 and following. Look. The dwelling place of God is with human beings. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Yes, Sam, everything sad is going to come untrue. All of our chaos, all of our desolation, 
our sin, our hurt, our pain is going to dissolve like the fragile snowflakes they are who drift under no power of their own, but can only melt as soon as they touch something real and solid. Indeed, they have already begun to dissolve upon the sure and solid foundation of Christ crucified. We will see the fullness of God's beauty in Christ, not dimly through a mirror, but face to face. The face of the very one who will wipe away all of our tears. And in that moment, everything will be transformed into something infinitely more beautiful and glorious than we could ever hope for or imagine. Thanks be to God.